Hello, hello, it's time for the news. It's the end of the week. I mean, you podcasters, I don't really know when you're listening. Podcastees? Anyway, I don't know when you're listening, but I am doing this show at 1 o'clock on Friday afternoon, and there's been a big snowstorm. I just want to say on a personal note that where I live is a on a very lovely street in a very lovely house, but the house is actually a converted garage for one of, from one of the nearby mansions, and as such, it does not have a garage because it was a garage. So why would it have a garage? See what I'm saying here? And it's on days like this, I think I'm getting really too old to get that much snow off my car. All right, that's enough whining. Now it's time to talk about the uh, topics we have today. Oh, we have a cornucopia of topics and possibly also a potpourri of them, uh, starting with John Stewart's uh, latest, uh, I don't know, a misunderstanding about John Stewart. Uh, and what he had to say about the depiction of goblins in Harry Potter. That apparently was a big emergency on social media this week. Uh, we've got stuff about the Pope and what he says about pets. Uh, also, you know, semi-big on social media this week. And then, you know, the, probably the biggest story of the week uh, is has a big Connecticut angle, and that is a reality TV star from Connecticut uh, who's also an Instagram influencer or something. There's no way to sort of dance around this. She was selling jars of her farts. Um, and because she took it seriously, she started like going eating stuff to make sure she farted more. There's just no nice way. There's no public radio way to talk about this. Anyway, she wanted to go into the emergency room. And I just want to say, you know, I salute her. We'll talk more about her. Just I salute her because, you know, I've occasionally brought bought jars of farts online. I get them. I think, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody did anything here. I, just, I think it's mainly just a concept. Uh, so I salute her level of commitment. All right. Well, and then we're going to talk about the French, French Dispatch, the first Wes Anderson live action movie in seven years, but who's counting? All right. So joining us today to do all this difficult work, Teresa Kramer, freelance writer and editor and co-founder of Quiet Corner Communications. Uh, and uh, Sam Hattleman, who works in music public relations and, hopes the, and hosts the Sam Hattleman Show at Radio Free Brooklyn. Tracy Wu Fastenberg is Development Officer at Connecticut Children's. Uh, and so we are excited to have them here. And yes, we will begin. Oh, wait a minute. Are we doing beginning with? We're not beginning with the Pope. That's right. We're beginning with uh, John Stewart. So um, John Stewart this week, uh, or recently anyway, on his show, The Problem with John Stewart, uh, was sitting around chatting. And I do, if you're in, interested in this at all, watch the clip. It's like three, three and a half minutes long. And they're just sort of, he and two other funny people are just kind of joking about stuff. And, and he starts making fun of how the goblins in, uh, in, in the Harry Potter movies look uh, and the fact that they are bankers and that they are, you know, somewhat avaricious bankers at that, assuming that that's not a redundancy. Uh, and... He said, you know, and, and he's, so they're laughing about it. And, and then what appeared to happen was that social media sort of thought, well, this is an important, this is a condemnation of J.K. Rowling and of Harry Potter and needs to be, I don't know what, Teresa Kramer, what did social media do? Why are we even talking about this? We're talking about this because somebody thought it was a more serious thing than maybe it probably was? I mean, yeah, I think you said it. Uh, best earlier when you said it became a social media emergency, but everything in social media is an emergency, right? Like, I mean, quite often, you know, people just don't, 
understand comedy anymore, don't get the joke, whatever the case is, they yell about it on Twitter. Everybody else sees it on Twitter. Then they yell about it on Twitter. And it just snowballs until what in any other time in history would have been just like someone going, oh, he's got a good point, turns into like, we're coming for JK Rowling again. And I think, you know, in our conversations earlier, Tracy had a good point that people are just primed to hate JK Rowling for any number of reasons right now. And so if he had been talking about almost anyone else, I don't know if it would have escalated to this point. Right. She is the proverbial chicken with a spot of blood. Uh, mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of pecking that goes on at her. Um, eventually, John Stewart felt the need to set the record straight. Uh, here is John Stewart attempting to do something like that. There is no reasonable person that could have watched it and not seen it as a lighthearted conversation amongst colleagues and chums, uh, <laughs> having a LARF, in, enjoying ourselves uh, uh, about Harry Potter and my experience watching it for the first time in a theater as a Jewish guy and, and how some tropes are so embedded in society that they're uh, basically invisible, even in a considered process like movie making, right? So let, let me let me just say this, like super clearly, as clearly as I can. Hello, uh, my name is John Stewart. I do not think J.K. Rowling is anti-Semitic. I did not accuse her of being anti-Semitic. I do not think that the Harry Potter movies are anti-Semitic. I really love the Harry Potter movies, probably too much for a gentleman of my considerable age. Uh, so I would just like to say that none of that is true and not a reasonable person could not have looked at that conversation and not found it lighthearted. All right. So, <laughs> so Sam Hattleman, I don't know what you, uh, where, where do you come down on all this? I'm not entirely sure I know. Um, well, let me just first give a preface that like John Stewart, like for better or for worse, was one of the more integral parts of my like becoming like getting into politics like i remember scouring youtube looking at clips of him arguing with bill o'reilly and tucker carlson and he always kind of like teetered this line like oh i'm not a i'm not a real journalist i'm a comedian and that's always i think kind of gotten him in trouble where people take his words at like a real weight because he comes off as like a journalist you know when he was on the daily show he would sit behind the little desk and show infographics and talk about politics really seriously but then he was always kind of like lighthearted and funny about it so people didn't really know how to take that and i'm not sure if his existence in today's world it requires a lot of nuance it requires understanding like okay john stewart's being politically funny but it's like sharp humor and sharp politics and to understand that you have to kind of understand the idiosyncrasies of John Stewart. And I'm not sure if uh, if today's world's really primed for that. But I also uh, I, I also kind of thought it was a lighthearted conversation. I, I didn't go home and write a 12-page theory uh, paper about the anti-Semitism in Harry Potter. So I, I, uh, I also kind of agree with him. Although Tracy Wu Fastenberg, people have written 12-page papers or the equivalent thereof about the anti-Semitism or lack of anti-Semitism uh, in the work of J.K. Rowling. And it, it seems as though most of the people who look at this pretty seriously come down on the side, kind of what John Stewart is saying, which is she it might not have occurred to her or whoever made the, those movies how those goblins looked. But if you look at the other stuff that she says and does, it does she doesn't seem a very likely candidate for anti-Semitism. Yeah, she. I mean, there's an article back in 2018 that I dug up that really went much more into depth than I thought was necessary, but was a nice sort of backstory, back um, shading for this, um, where 
people to discuss the goblins yet again, um, but also some of her pro-Israel, pro-Jewish work um, outside of, you know, literary things. And so it kind of came on like, you know, exactly as John Stewart said, you know, there is this trope that exists, you know, throughout history, and that was probably unknowingly embraced um, or possibly slightly knowingly embraced by the filmmakers, maybe by J.K. Rowling herself. But I do think that given her, her very strong and vocal um, anti-trans stance and the blowback that she's frankly, frankly, rightly, frankly, rightfully <laughs> gotten for it, it makes her a very easy target to see, you know, what side of issues does she come down on? Um, so I think when this pops up, it sort of is like that trigger response because there has been this history with other marginalized groups where she has um, come off as or made it very clear that she's extremely turfy. You know, I, I have to say this. There, there is there's a complicated almost triangulation, triangulation that goes on among the creator, um, the uh, baked in tropes. And then the digester of what it gets created. And I'll give a different example than the goblins in Harry Potter, and that would be the blue hook nose winged creature in Phantom Menace, who Jonathan McPants informs me without having to look it up, is named Watto. You know, and when I first saw Phantom Menace, I thought, wow. Not only is Jar Jar Binks kind of offensive in a lot of different ways, but Watto is like really kind of an anti-Semitic stereotype, you know? But and, and in a way very similar to the goblins. And, and I think what's happening is I look at that and I see things that have been used as anti-Semitic stereotypes, which is a different part of the triangle from what the creator might have been trying to do. Uh, and then the question is, you know, is the creator under, under some kind of obligation to avoid uh, tr- hitting those tripwires? But, but I, I just to go back to what we were saying at the beginning, it, it struck John, John Stewart as kind of funny. <laughs> and I think that's the kind, you know, in this strident environment that we're in right now, maybe that's just the hardest thing for people to understand. It's something could be kind of outrageous, uh, but also funny uh, and didn't necessarily require, you know, a, a march of several million people. Um, all right. We do have to shift gears here because we're going to uh, trot right along here. Uh, sounds like we're all more or less on the same page uh, about that. Um, I'm trying to make the notes move. So I, I don't know whether I'm doing the Pope next or the farts next. Uh, but uh, it's the it's the Pope. <laughs> it's the Pope. Pope comes next. Uh, so um, so the Pope, uh, Pope Francis, uh, this week said um, that uh, in, in a general audience uh, talking about um, about parenthood, uh, he's worried there's a demographic winter, as he calls it. Uh, and he says that people who have pets instead of children were being selfish, exhibiting a denial of fatherhood and motherhood that diminishes us all and takes away our humanity. Uh, yes, dogs and cats take the place of children. It's funny, I understand, but it's the reality. Um, so uh, it's good that he understands that's funny. It's like that that had been applied to the J.K. Rowling situation. Uh, uh, but so let's start with the person who has all the children here, Tracy Fastenberg. Um I mean, I have a son, too, but he's not very little anymore. Um, so so what about all this? So I think that he's definitely stepped out of line here. I get it. You know, there are the tenets of Catholicism where there's no birth control that, you know, we're made to procreate more tiny humans in God's image and yada, yada. But um, I don't think it's his place to really go as far as to say owning a pet instead of having children is being selfish. I mean, parenthood is not easy. 
Um, and so it is not for everyone. And it's frankly, none of anybody else's business, whether somebody chooses or is able to become a parent or not. And so this is something that he probably just should have shut up on, um, frankly. And, you know, I think about the other stances of the Catholic Church. So, you know, gay couples or same-sex couples having adopted children. How do they feel about that? If they're really caring about the children, you know, there's got to be some broadening there and not these like wide washes of uh, judgment going on. Although I think Teresa made a pretty good point in, um, in I think, both a Facebook post and our email conversation. Well, let's throw it over to Teresa so she can make that very good point. Yeah, I mean, I saw this before we even started talking about it as a 40-year-old woman with no kids and two dogs. I was immediately incensed, like this would be my social media outrage. (laughs) This guy who's literally is not allowed to procreate because of his job, like like (laughs) telling people that they should just go out and have kids whether they want to or are able to or not or have any interest in children or their lifestyle, um, you know, is conducive to having children. Um, I think he, I also think it's sort of ridiculous that he's equate, like, yes, there are a lot of people who choose not to have kids and then have pets because they have like this caring instinct and this nurturing instinct that they need to do something with. But the idea that the choice not to have kids was about the pets is absurd. Like people, (laughs) you know, there are lots of concerns about what the world's going to look like when kids grow up. And there are lots of financial concerns and concerns about whether or not you can get time off of work to actually have those children. And all of those things are what is really, you know, compelling people not to have children most of the time. And, you know, for a, for a Pope who's been so progressive in so many other ways, at least for a Pope, it's absurd that he wouldn't have taken the time to talk about that instead. Right. I mean, one thing, as the New York Times pointed out, one, one group of people who don't have kids but have pets are popes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of popes <laughs> a lot of popes have had pets. I was thrilled to find out that Pope Pius II had a monkey. And then I wanted to find at least some kind oh, of art, artistic rendering of Pope Pius II and his monkey. And <laughs> so I amazing. wasted a certain amount of time on Google uh, and came up empty. But um, I mean, yeah, go ahead. maybe he should have thought about, you know, looking at the the rules around monastic life instead of condemning pet owners, mm-hmm. maybe allowing those who choose to become priests or nuns or enter religious life to marry and have children might have been a better way to repopulate the world. Well, I will say this. He's he's fascinating to watch. Well, actually, Sam, I should let you uh, jump in here before I uh, opine even more. But go ahead. So go ahead. Um, I'll also say I'm probably not the Pope's, you know, uh, clientele. <laughs> but, um, uh, I just thought that was kind of insane to be like, hey, I know there's a worldwide pandemic going on and uh, people are can't really get jobs and, you know, we're all being crushed by the weight of everything going on. But hey, have you thought about having kids? Like, why are you getting a dog? That's that's insane. That's like an insane thing to say to people. Like, but I, I but like, on the other hand, I do think it was kind of insane for, for people to get like pandemic pets. Sorry if anyone here has one. Um, but I, I don't know, like, why get mad at people for a problem they have nothing to do with? Like, it's a larger societal problem. Like, mm-hmm. I know a lot of my peers aren't really focused on children and family unless you're from Florida. But if, if you're, yeah. if you're like, from anywhere else, like, you're focused on just getting by, getting your first job, making sure that you're financially secure, staying safe during a pandemic. Like, you can't blame people for wanting to bring home some 
Labrador. You know what I mean? That's just kind of insane. (laughs) I would also disagree that there's even a problem, right? I get that, you know, populations are declining in certain countries and that presents maybe an economic problem, but it's, you know, overpopulation is a bigger problem for the globe as a, for the world at large. And so like the idea that he thinks we just need to keep making more people to, I, I don't even know to what end, um, other than, as Tracy put it, making little people in God's images. Like, I, d- I just don't know what he's on about, frankly. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been yeah. to the I've been to the Milford Mall in December. There's enough kids yeah, out there. Yeah. I promise. <laughs> With their sticky jam hands. All right. So, um, yeah, I just want to say, first of all, uh, I suddenly realized that the person we should have talked to about this is my uh, good friend. Well, he's sort of my good friend, even though I've never met him. Uh, we, have, we have a lot of communication back and forth. Henry Alford, who for a long time uh, in the original Spy magazine, he did, the, I think it was a running series of kind of marginalia, but it was like, what if the Pope were a dog? Uh, and <laughs> and then he would sort of talk about all these things that the Pope would do if the Pope were a dog. Uh, and it was very funny. But I, I do want to say about Pope Francis, I'm fascinated by Pope Francis, and he clearly gets, for example, climate change. So it is kind mm-hmm. of weird that he thinks we need more people because he really gets climate change. But he's also, I don't know, you know, well, none of us will ever know. I feel confident in saying this. None of us will ever know what it's like to be Pope. You know, it must be just like this really special experience. And I think Pope Francis, I don't know, sometimes I feel like he's very, very studious about everything that he says and thinks. He kind of works the whole thing out. And sometimes I feel like he's just kind of making it up on the spot, which is something you kind of get to do if you're the Pope anyway. Um, and, and like re- in December, he did this whole thing. It was kind of apropos, I think, of a bishop who'd had an affair with, I think, a married woman. And this all happened in France. Uh, it was, I think, the dropped from the French dispatch. It was going to be the sixth plot line in, in the West Anderson <laughs> movie. But, but no, in real life. And, and so he just said, you know, yeah, this is bad and that that's a sin. Because it's not like a really bad sin. And he named some things that he thought were really bad sins. And I'm thinking, making sexy time when you're a bishop with a married woman is not one of the really – I mean, fine. I'm, you know, I'm not arguing with that. It just seems like he moved the goalpost like sideways and backwards all at once. Uh, and so maybe that's maybe that's just what you get to do. Anyway, all right. We have to keep moving here because we have one more uh, item in this segment. And, and we, we – you know, Ira Glass once said you can't break public radio. Yet I continue to try uh, by introducing <laughs> topics like this one. So, yes, we're going to talk about Stephanie Mato, who's from Connecticut. We don't know where in Connecticut she's from. But get in touch, Stephanie, because we would like you to be on the show. So she's on um, a show or was on a show that I'm sure Carolyn Payne and possibly Kat Pastor have watched called the 90 Day Fiancé. Is that what it's called? I think that's mm-hmm. what it's called. Um, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping Kat will help me out in there. Uh, and then she sort of became an Instagram celebrity. Then – and the 90 Day Fiance. Then, uh, she, yeah, she's got an Instagram following. She's got a YouTube channel. And then it's not exactly clear what the logical procession here is, Teresa. But at some point, she decided she would sell her, her farts. I mean, there's just I've, no nice way to say this. In, like in a jar, I guess, online. T- I mean, I feel over. like what we, we've learned here and what I – I, probably most women have always known is that men will pay for anything that comes from a hot girl, right? Like <laughs> she's charging a thousand dollars for what is essentially an empty jar of maybe well, a little bit of her gas <laughs> <laughs> and making bank. Like she just made, what did it say? It made, she made like 
over $200,000. 254,000. Yes. (laughs) And I mean, it's like, you know, you could probably sell your socks. She could, she could probably just switch to selling your socks and continue like used socks and make the same. Well, no, Um, no, not, not once you put, you set the bar at farts. Nobody's going to (laughs) want. But I really admire her stick-to-itiveness here. Like if, if I had found that people were willing to pay for gas in a jar, I would have completely just been like, yeah, here's a jar. I would not have bothered to actually try to fart in the jar. So, it would, <laughs> But we, we, she yeah. is going to such great lengths to produce enough gas to continue the supply chain here that she ended up in the hospital. It's amazing. Right. You're a hero. I'd like to know what Pope Francis thinks about this, because there's clearly a methane component here that's <laughs> that's going to commit uh, contribute to climate change here. So, um, you know, Sam, we haven't uh, said the the other part of this, which was she um, she felt as though she because she needed to pass more gas. She needed to change her diet. This included uh, fiber rich foods, beans and eggs. Protein shakes were added to the mix after the revolution revelation that it made her gas smell even more unpleasant because you you know open the jar you, you don't you don't want to be guessing you want to like, well that's definitely you know that's definitely Stephanie uh, so uh, and I guess after three protein shakes protein shakes and a big bowl of black beans or something she wound up in the ER because <laughs> um, she was having sort of heart attack symptoms or things that really felt you know pretty extreme and, I mean we've all been there right. Right, right. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's some ER doctor who came home that day, and her husband said, "What what happened at work?" And she said, "You're not going to believe this." Yeah. Uh, Sam, I don't know what I expect you to do with this tennis ball I'm hitting over in the net, aren't I, you? I I, uh, I can't believe I'm here talking about this. Uh, on, you know, for all these things that we said don't require a 12 page paper, I think I feel like I could write a 12 page paper about how I could blame this on capitalism somehow. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. this is somehow some weird symptom. <laughs> Uh, also, like I was thinking, I'm like God knew what he was doing when he made me a man. Because if I was if I was an attractive woman, I'd be selling my toenails. Like God, fifty bucks here, mm-hmm. and just clip my toenails and pay my rent, please. I'm sure somebody somewhere is. Yeah, get that, get that, get that money, sis. I get it. Um, but like uh, on the and also get better. If you're in the hospital, you know, get better. Um, but this is also like why I avoid TikTok. Like I know everybody thinks that like, oh, he's 24. He must be really tapped into all this weird social media stuff. No, no. I avoid it at all costs because this is insane. Like he was, I can't believe I'm uttering the phrase fart seller, like fart, fart merchant. Like that is that is crazy that I'm professionally talking about this. If, um, if that if that URL is not already taken, I'm going out and getting it today. Fartmerchant.com. Here I come. Well, our, our, she's not just she's not just a merchant. She is a producer of a product. Uh-huh. Right. This this really you know for some reason or other at my house we recently started rewatching old episodes of House. You know <laughs> where he's like constantly just you know dealing with he, they make him work in the clinic sometimes. Uh, and so he sees people with really stupid problems. And he's just so mean to them. <laughs> I just I just want to see Dr. House deal with Stephanie Mato. But, yeah, I mean, Tracy, well, I, I don't mean to throw this one at you because I don't know what it means. I mean, one of the things I've decided I'm just not going to learn about because I can just sort of die in the in, in the intermediary amount of time or, or become less relevant. So I'm not learning about cryptocurrency. But um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, there's, she's starting an NFT with uh, like a fart NFT. And I think that might be the problem with NFTs, which is that you probably don't actually have to break wind anymore, right? Because it's all conceptual. I don't know. I'm, I'm asking you like I expect you to understand this. 
I mean, I frankly, I, I don't understand, but I do admire her um, her creativity. Mm-hmm. And I figure, you know, as as I mentioned in a, as we were chatting, the pure logistics of capturing <laughs> and retaining packaging, you know, how do you declare it to the shipping um, <laughs> provider? It's hazardous know, all materials, of the, all of those, obviously. That, that poor mailman. Oh. That that poor mailman knows oh, exactly God. what's coming. <laughs> you know, it's eliminated with this new scheme. You know, all of those sort of considerations mm-hmm. and possible pitfalls are sort of, you know, she's eliminated the barriers to her business. All right. So we also learned a word, um, a new word, entrepreneur. Uh, she may be the only one. I, I somehow rather doubt she is the only one uh, who fits that description. But um, that's enough, I think. I think everybody would agree. We've, we may not have exhausted the subject, but that's enough anyway. So we're going to take a break. We're actually going to talk about something that sort of you know, really resembles culture. That would be a movie. We'll do that after the proverbial this. we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. So uh, roughly 25 years ago, uh, my son and I were walking around Blockbuster the way people used to walk around Blockbuster, looking at all the movies and thinking, saw that, saw that, don't, don't want to see that, saw that, don't, would never watch that, saw that twice, don't want to watch it again. We couldn't find anything and we, we wound up grabbing a movie called Bottle Rocket. Uh, we didn't know anything about it. There wasn't really anybody in it that we knew except for James Caan who had a kind of secondary role. Everybody else was a nobody. Um, the two of those nobodies were Owen Wilson and Luke Wilson, but nobody had ever seen either one of them before. So we went home and our minds were blown by this movie and we both kind of became Wes Anderson devotees. Um, and obviously as when it became clear he was going to have a career. Um, and, and the next movie was Rush, Rushmore, which also blew us away in different ways. And we've kind of hung in there ever since. Um so the French Dispatch uh, is Wes Anderson's. You can sense me gathering myself as I, as I come to this point. So it's the, his first live action movie uh, in seven years. The last one of those was the Grand Budapest Hotel. The intervening movie was Isle of Dogs, which is animated. 
And so the French Dispatch is an uh, anthology movie. Uh, it's actually, I guess, the real title of it is The French Dispatch of the Liberty, Kansas Evening Sun. Uh, and it's an homage to The New Yorker. Uh, it's an homage to France, where, in fact, Wes Anderson now lives. Uh, and it's full of movie stars and famous actors and not-so-famous really good actors, uh, often in very, very tiny roles. And I'm going to hand it off here. I'm, Sam, I'm going to get you're, – you're, I know you're a big partisan of this movie. Uh, my tone of voice may suggest already that maybe I'm not. But, uh, Sam, uh, your enthusiasm tends to be infectious. So what have you got to say? Oh, thank you. Yeah, it, I feel like it's real surprising that I really rock with Wes Anderson because you know me, like I'm not pretentious. I don't, you know, grind my own coffee beans and wake up and read 1920 French literature with a scarf and, you know, go to Yale. Um, like, I don't, are you, I don't are you do describing it. me right now. I feel like you're <laughs> describing me. It's a compliment. It's yeah. a compliment. I wish I could, you know, wake up and read books and all that. Um, but uh, yeah, I absolutely love Wes Anderson. I love the world he creates and like, his attention to detail is really what gets me, like how every outfit's coordinated. The script doesn't feel like it's lagging. The acting choices are always so purposeful. He really knows how to utilize the full range of different actors. And it was cool to see, and especially in the French Dispatch, it was cool to see him like kind of coach younger uh, actors like Timothy Chamolet. Um, uh, I, I, I don't know. I understand why people don't like this movie, and I understand why people don't like Wes Anderson in general. It's pretentious, and it, I, feel, I feel like... You just kind of have to accept it for what it is. Like, regardless if you think that it's a little too overboard or it's a little too big of a concept, I feel like he kind of pulled it off. I really enjoyed each anthology. It felt like a its own little movie. And I went to the movie theater and I saw it with like six little old ladies and me, and we all were like cracking up the whole time, <laughs> like looking at each other and laughing. Um, I had a really good time watching the movie. All right. So before we hear uh, from the other panelists, um, let's hear uh, a clip. This is this kind of establishes the opening. It features two of Wes Anderson's most loyal repertory company members, Angelica Houston, uh, who is the voice of the narrator, and Bill Murray, who is the is Arthur Howitzer Jr., uh, the founder of this kind of New Yorker like magazine. Uh, here we go. His most repeated literary advice, perhaps apocryphal, was simply this. Just try to make it sound like you wrote it that way on purpose. His return to liberty comes precisely 50 years after his departure, on the occasion of his funeral, by which time the magazine's circulation exceeds half a million subscribers in 50 countries. A willow hamper containing umpteen pins, plaques, and official citations of the highest order is buried at his side, along with an Andretti ribbon mate and a ream of triple-bond Egyptian cotton typing stock. In his will, he stipulated that, immediately upon his death, quote, The presses will be dismantled and liquefied. The editorial offices will be vacated and sold. The staff will be paid ample bonuses and released from their contracts. And the publication of the magazine will permanently cease. Thus, the publisher's obituary will also serve as that of this publication. All home delivery readers will, of course, be refunded pro rata for the unfulfilled portion of their subscriptions. All right. So, Teresa Kramer, we'll just go to you next. You're not a Wes Anderson partisan at all. Uh, <laughs> like me, well, I've I've probably written for I don't know thirty magazines, although never in the New Yorker. Um, so it's always kind of interesting to see <laughs> for me to see how magazine work is depicted here. But anyway, just I'd just be interested in your general reactions to get started here. I mean, 
mean, what for all the reasons Sam described, I always feel like I'm going to like a Wes Anderson movie. And this one I had especially high hopes for. To be honest, I never even I didn't even know this movie existed until you asked me to watch it for the show. So I went into it with no real expectations other than my usual ones for Wes Anderson. And I saw what it was about and this sort of New Yorker style magazine. And I was like, okay. I mean, I'm interested in journalism and maybe I'll like this one. And that did not happen. I didn't, with any of these movies, I don't, I don't ever hate them and I, they're beautiful. And I think that's part of the problem for me is that there's so much going on on screen that I don't even really know what's happening in the movie half the time because the dialogue can be a little hard to follow. It's written in ways that seem to purposely try to confuse you. And in this particular one, because so much of it was set in France, there's a lot of subtitles that, at least for me watching at home on my relatively small TV, I had a hard time reading because they're white and they're in a kind of funky font and they're often on a black and white background. And so I think I probably missed 60% of this movie while watching it. And, you know... the sort of stylized nature of Wes Anderson is not for me. And I sort of understand, and they just get more and more stylized as he goes on. And I, I understand why people like him. I really want to like these movies and it just never happens. Yeah. So Tracy, as a Wes Anderson fan, and I really am a big Wes Anderson Mm -hmm. fan all all along, I've been wondering, at what point is that stylization, the art direction, the production values, the whole twee uh, aesthetic uh, of Wes Anderson, at what point are we going to have one of those that kind of overwhelms the humanity, which it's meant to underscore and support? And for me, this is that movie. This is kind of a tipping point movie. I hope it's not a permanent tipping point, but I I feel like Wes Anderson's Wes Anderson-ness is kind of the star of this movie as opposed to anything else. I would agree with that. You know, like Teresa, I like all of the elements that, you know, Wes Anderson incorporates into his film. So, you know, if you take each one individually, I'm like, oh, I like that. Oh, I like that. Oh, I like that. So you'd think when you put them all together that I would be all about it. Um, But like Teresa, I never like them as much as I hope to. And I think perhaps in this one, there were just too much of each of those elements, you know, almost too carefully crafted, too layered upon each other that it started almost... Um, I don't want to say becoming a parody of itself, but um, being too aware of what it is and trying too hard to be what he is. Um, you know, I I enjoyed it overall, I guess, you know, but I, I wasn't engrossed in it. Um, you know, I had lots of other distractions that happened throughout and I didn't mind them as opposed to a movie where, you know, you know, the postman comes to the door and it sort of breaks your concentration and you're just, you know, really annoyed by it. That didn't happen with this movie for me. I I enjoyed lots of the parts of it, but as a whole, I don't think I would watch it again. Um, And I do agree with you that it is, it's almost pushing that boundary of being too much itself. Yeah. And I also want to say I had a little bit of a problem with the, the casting in this movie, I mean, Wes Anderson appears to be able to get just about almost anybody to be in his movies. I think people want to do it. There's, they're probably fun to work on. 
Uh, Angelica Houston said at one point that she liked to do it because you could smoke so much, uh, both uh, on camera and off camera, uh, and that she was usually giving up smoking, but then she didn't have to when she's working on Wes Anderson. But, you know, I mean, in this movie, I just feel like there's almost a conspicuous consumption of interesting actors in really, really tiny roles. And the one that almost kind of offends me, although God knows she was at liberty to turn this down, but Lois Smith, who I believe is 91 years old right now and is an amazing acting treasure, uh, you know, has this, I don't know, she has like two lines. They're not interesting lines. There's, she kind of delivers them in this very kind of affected version of what might be a Kansas accent, but I don't think it even, I don't know. I'm thinking, really? They're not going to be that many more Lois Smith movies. <laughs> why Why are you using her this way? Why is Henry Winkler there with like, you know, two lines? And, and, and Rupert Friend, who is like this amazing actor who I fell in love with, uh, in, in the series Homeland has like one little speech and he's gone. Mm. And and I, I just feel in a way, Sam, it sort of feels like he's showing off. Like I can get anybody and I don't even have to give them very much to do. Uh, and I don't know. that It's probably a very specific and idiosyncratic result, but a re- reaction. But that's how I uh- reacted. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree on the and this is why I feel like the pairings of actors he picked for this film like yes there was a wide array but the pairings he picked for the certain stories I thought they worked really well like Valencio del Toro and Adrian Brody um, you had Francis McDormand and Timothy Chalamet Jeffrey Wright and Lee Schreiber and Edward Norton like it's not like he just threw things at the wall and saw what stuck I thought it was very intentional how he assembled the cast and how he utilized them and that's kind of always been like one of my favorite things about Wes Anderson movies is that like however you think uh he's going to use someone in a cast he kind of like sometimes will be a little bit more subtle about it like when he had Donald um Danny Glover in the Royal Tenenbaums. That's kind of what it reminded me of. Like, you have this great actor, and he barely utilizes him, but I feel like it was very intentional. You know, I mean, Teresa, in a way, the thing that intrigued me the most, I mean, another criticism I think a person could make uh, of of Wes Anderson is that his movies are mostly about male depression. Most of the characters, mm-hmm. the male characters kind of, you know, reverberate in a way that maybe the female characters don't. And it's actually been mostly about white male depression when you get down to it. Um, and And so having Jeffrey Wright, the amazing actor Jeffrey Wright, uh, play basically James Baldwin with a dash of mm-hmm. A.J. Liebling. That really <laughs> intrigued me. And, and you know, there I guess it's a, it's a, that particular one and it's it's all sort of framed by an, uh, in an interview that Liev Schreiber uh, is playing the interviewer who's interviewing Jeffrey Wright and he's kind of recalling all this stuff. You know, it was like with all of these, I was so close to really liking them. <laughs> and, and it's just like Wes Anderson got in the way of me liking Wes Anderson. Yeah, and I think the Jeffrey Wright storyline, as well as the Benicio del Toro storyline, I think were probably the most interesting to me. And I don't know if that's because it they weren't white men. I, I'm not, it may just be because they're both such actors. And I don't necessarily, you know, one of the other main ones was Timothy Chalamet, who everybody loves. I don't personally get it. I mean, he's not bad, but I don't understand why everybody loves him as much as they do. So I was really, I think I nodded off for quite a bit of that storyline. But the other two kind of kept um, my attention much more. And maybe and maybe it's just because it's Wes Anderson stepping away from what he does so often. 
Right. Um, we should say that the Timothy Chalamet one also features Frances McDormand. In f- yeah, she was great. And finally, you know, uh, um, I mean, there have been some other instances, but like a, a, a front and center woman's role. Um, I, I wouldn't say the same thing about the Tilda Swinton part in, in the first uh, of the episodes in the anthology where I thought she was kind of submerged a little bit. But uh, mm-hmm. let's hear just a quick uh, clip here. One of um, the other favorite actors of Wes Anderson is Adrian Brody. He plays an art dealer uh, named Julian Cadazio. And we hear Benicio del Toro, who is a convicted murderer who has discovered the gift of painting while in prison. Simone naked cell block J hobby room. I want to buy it. It's not for sale. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. It is. Yes, it is. All artists sell all their work. It's what makes you an artist. Selling it. If you don't wish to sell it, don't paint it. Question is, what's your price? 50 cigarettes. Actually, make it 75. I don't want to buy this important piece for 50 cigarettes. Or 75 with prison currency. I want to pay you 250,000 francs in legal French tender. Do we agree on the sale? Uh-huh. I can only offer a deposit of uh, 83 centimes, one candy chestnut, and four cigarettes. Everything I have at this present moment in time. However, if you'll accept my signatory voucher, I assure you a check for the outstanding balance will be remitted to your account within 90 days. Where do you bank? Never mind. So we're almost out of time here, Tracy Fasterberg, but I find myself... Um you know, picturing a similar conversation between uh, Stephanie Mata or whatever her name is and whoever <laughs> persuaded her to charge money for her farts, she might have initially not seen this, you know, uh, as the kind of thing that would distinguish her as an artist. And somebody said, no, you're not. Until you charge money, you're not. So I don't know, Tracy, I, I guess as we wrap up this thing, I feel like my biggest fear is that people are going to watch this movie not see, having seen the, the Wes Anderson movies that could potentially enrich and or uplift them. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I am not the hugest Wes Anderson film for the, you know, aforementioned reasons, but I think that this would not be the good starter one, uh, perhaps, especially not each vignette sort of, to you know, one after the other after the other. If one were to watch one singularly or, you know, spaced out, it might be more palatable, less, less overkill. Um, I do have to mention, just because in listening to that clip, I actually really enjoyed the music in there. Um, Alexandra Duplat is, has done so many um, movies that where I really enjoy um, the music. And I thought that it was really well done in this one, as opposed to, um, you know, where it could have been much more quirky or much more whatever. It, it just balanced it really well um, and kind of helped dilute some of the super Wes Anderson-iness <laughs> All right. So we we should stop there so we'll have some time to make some recommendations on the other side. The movie is The French Dispatch. Don't see it without seeing a better Wes Anderson movie or two first. That's what I insist. Thank <laughs> you. 
We're back. It's time to thank Cat Pastor, our technical producer, uh, and Jonathan McPants, who is the producer of this episode and pretty much all news uh, episodes. Time to make some recommendations. Uh, our panelists today are Tracy Wu Fastenberg, Teresa Kramer, Sam Haddleman. I quickly want to say at the top of this, uh, not too long before we got going on the show, we got the news that Sidney Poitier uh, had died. Uh, I, uh, there will be some very eloquent memorializations of him. We decided that we, we wouldn't bumble through it. Although I do want to say, In the Heat of the Night was probably the first grown-up movie to which I had a semi-grown-up reaction. So uh, he's, he's sort of with me uh, forever that way. But uh, let's hear some recommendations. Sam, why don't you get us going? Um, first off, thank you for having me on. Obviously, love ranting about Wes Anderson. I'm going to recommend uh, this album I listened to the other day called Half God by Wiki. He's a New York City underground artist and... I don't, know, I don't really even like relate to music that much where like I usually look at stuff like a casual observer, like objective. Like I listen to music because it gives other people's perspectives to me. But this was like a project that I listened to and I was like, oh, I understand that. I felt that way. He has a really cool song about gentrification, which is really hard to put into rap music without being corny. Um, but he has these lyrics that's like move, get out the way. You got your whole penthouse to play. Don't do it here. Veer that way. Cross the George Washington Bridge dip. I like that. It was very concise. So. Yeah, Half God by Wiki. All right. Thanks for that, Sam. Uh, Teresa Kramer, what about you? Um, you know, in in conjunction with our Stuart Rowling conversation, I was thinking about a comedian named Sam Jay. She's a black queer woman who herself, I think, has gotten into some hot water with the trans community for some jokes she made in her special, which is on the whole, laugh out loud funny and is on Netflix. But she's also got a show on HBO called Pause that's really great. And she explores different topics. She goes out and interviews people. But then there's also like in every episode, there's just a party where she's hanging at home with her friends and all these other comedians and talking about the same issue. And she's she's just really, really funny. And I want everybody to go out and, you know, learn who she is. All right. She's, so she's phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Uh, second uh, uh, chiming in there. Uh, that's uh, and, and see her name again. Pause. I can remember. Pause on HBO Max. I, I can remember. Her name is Sam J. Sam J. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Tracy Wu Fasterberg. What about you? So in this, you know, I don't know, whatever umpteenth wave where we're all kind of sitting there going, all right, this again. You know, I, I think a lot of us are caregivers of some sort, whether it's two children, parents, neighbors, whatever. Um, you know, I think we could all use a reminder to take care of ourselves in this, um, not take ourselves too seriously. And so I have actually been really enjoying the TSA Instagram account. And that is not words that I ever thought I would say, but it is hilarious. Um, So if you need a moment of levity and sort of a little bit of fun, just check out TSA um, on Instagram. And actually I'm looking at one that is Rocco, Elmo and Zoe from Sesame Street, which was a possible topic for us today, and I thought it was very timely. Wait, what do you mean TSA? You mean the Transportation Safety Administration? That TSA? Yes. We're yes. like patting patting uh, Elmo down or something. Uh, <laughs> I don't. Know. I'll I have mean, to look they're up. all kind of funny. You know, they're all informative as yeah. far as what you can and cannot do when traveling. But they uh, take dad jokes to a new level, and mm. they have a lot of fun with it. All right. So yeah, Elmo and Rocco, who's a rock, having a feud, and Elmo kind of lost his stuff this week uh, at Rocco. So we almost talked about that. All right. So I might have mentioned at the end of the year and kind of cleaned out my podcast queue and started over almost. 
And so I wound up with 912, which is hosted by Dan Taberski, among other things, a former writer for The Daily Show. This is really one of the most amazing podcast series I've ever heard. It's terrific. There are not enough episodes of it. I mean, I went through them very, very fast. Um, it, it's it's about the World Trade Center attack, uh, attacks and the Pentagon attack. And, um, and um but it's not also. It's really about the country, what we turned into, um, how we tried to understand it, how we tried to learn about it. There's no, no way that I'm going to be able to characterize it in a way that does justice to it. it. It really, I mean, I love podcasts anyway, and I've listened to a lot of them. This is one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to ever. So it's called 912. Hey, Check it out. Uh, I listened to that one too, and I liked it a lot. That first episode about the people on the ship is Great. And the like the episode where like I knew a little bit about this and it's something I talk about all the time, too, but that they got all these Hollywood creatives uh, mm-hmm, to try mm-hmm. to uh, together to try to figure out what was going to happen next. And then they did stuff like they had like the screenwriter of, I don't know, Die Hard. They had him like try to put an orange sticker on the orange on the Washington Monument to see what it was possible to do. I mean, it was all this just crazy stuff, but just very, very fascinating and very well delivered too. And he's a good writer and all this stuff. And then this really surprised me. But um, the series Hawkeye on on Disney Plus. I mean, I'm all kind of marveled out. I'm MCU'd out, I think. But I don't know how we want up watching it. But we first of all, Haley Steinfeld is just terrific. If you like her in Dickinson, you might even like her better in Hawkeye. She's going to be the new Hawkeye. That's I don't think that's a secret or anything. And Jeremy, oh, geez, spoiler alert. Yeah, no, but Jeremy <laughs> Jeremy Renner, he's still Hawkeye too, kind of. Uh, and it, it's very very funny. It requires a certain amount of MCU orthodoxy knowledge uh, in order to get all the jokes and all the references. At one point, they hire the Hairspray team to write a kind of fake musical, a Broadway musical called Rogers the Musical, which Jeremy Renner and his kids are sitting in a Broadway audience on the first episode watching a musical about the Avengers saving New York City. (laughs) And then at the end, they come back. Uh, and it, it, it is just very much uh, – they, and there's one more big song called uh, I Can Do This All Day, which Captain America and his friends sing. And, and it's very much like a hairspray song. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know. It's, I'm surprised at how much I like it. It's funny. Uh, it's fanciful. It's probably a waste of the hairspray guys to have them <laughs> writing fake musicals about Marvel characters, and it's an indication of how much time and money and talent the MCU now can monopolize. But it's also it was very entertaining. Okay, I'm done. Uh, thanks very much to this wonderful panel. Uh, a lot of fun on the news today. Sam Hattleman and Teresa Kramer, uh, and of course Tracy Wu Fastenberg. Thanks to Cat Pastor. Thanks to Mr. Pants himself. We'll be back next week. Farmington. Yeah, 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 yeah. Along the way.